This morning is called The Sons of Korah. It is uh, August 15th, 2010. We're going to start in Genesis 4. What I was just telling you is, as I began to deal with the subject matter of this message in my heart over this week, um, it reminded me of what it was like to be lost, what it was like to feel a distance between me and the Lord, what it was like to feel despair, and all of the time telling everybody everything is okay, all of the time bragging about the latest party. I did everything I could to build my physical man in a way that said everything's all right. I did whatever it could to convince myself I was happy, and yet every day that I laid in bed at night, I was ashamed and knew it. And uh, there's only one state that a believer can be in like that. There's only one way for a believer to revisit those feelings. And that's when there's a need for repentance in our lives. Uh, are you in Genesis 4? Yes. yes. Pretty familiar story. I've preached a lot about it lately. Everybody remembers that I think the last time we were here, the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. This was because there was something in Cain's life other than his offering. Something that was a habitual pattern that God could not bless. Then we moved on to verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, and you must master it. Cain is presented with a problem that all mankind would always be presented with. Sin is right there crouching at our door. So that Romans 7 says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. This is a problem all of the time. <coughs> in Christ, we find victory over it. But I saw something in Cain's reaction this week. Just as last week I saw something in the offerings I'd never seen before. I saw something in Cain's reaction that unfortunately I identified with in a personal way. It says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. Now, he's already been warned by God. He's been warned that sin is there. He's been warned that if he doesn't master it, it will be a problem. And he says, Let us go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This sounds like it was premeditated, doesn't it? God warns him, but he dwells on it, and he goes out in a field to kill him. Why didn't he kill him in a city? Why didn't he kill him in his household? Sin done in secrecy is very, very powerful. If you feel as if you've gotten away with something, if you feel as if no one knows, it's very, very hard to get healed something that you've not allowed to be revealed. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know. What is that called, saints? A lie. Did he know where his brother was? Yeah, he just beat his head in with a rock out in a field. So he knew where he was. So a man that is confronted with the potential for sin in a situation, but premeditates to commit the sin anyway, then how does he act when he's confronted? He lies and is evasive. Is it really any different, though, when somebody walks up to you and says, Hey, man, how's it going? It's going fine. 
when it's going anything but fine? Is it really any different when a prophecy comes forth and it reads your mail, but your first thought is, I hope nobody knows that's me? See, he is being confronted by the living God with a question that, of course, God already knows the answer to. But he wants to see where Cain's heart is. Is Cain's heart in a position that wants revelation, that wants to be healed, that wants to get it right? No, he's still in cover-up mode. I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? This is almost an accusation against God, and it is directly opposed to the character of God. Are we our brother's keeper? Well, the greatest of the commandments is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So the man has premeditated a sin. He's committed the sin. Then when confronted for the purpose of restoration, he's hidden it. And now he's expressing complete disregard for the intent of God. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? It would have been great if Cain just jumped out right here. All these are opportunities to repent. My point here as we go through this is in the beginning, when God said, sin is at your door and you must master it, Cain could have said, yeah, Lord, to tell you the truth, I've been really struggling with my brother Abel. Every time he speaks to me, I just want to choke him. But he didn't. <laughs> then, when he goes out to a field with him, he could have stopped at any time and said, Abel, I'm having a problem with you. Now, maybe, maybe it's just good old jealousy. Maybe I'm just mad at you because God likes you more than he likes me because our deeds are different. But he didn't. Then after he committed this sin and God comes and says, where is your brother? It would have been an opportunity to say, God, I can't believe I did something horrible and I need your mercy. But he didn't. Then after God speaks to him a little more, he begins to level accusations against God. Am I my brother's keeper? Sin will always take you further than you intended for it to go. And something about deception is so powerful that once you give it a foothold, it can surround your life until, well, the Bible says to the pure, all things are pure. To the impure, nothing is pure. You can get so depraved that when God himself confronts you, no matter what method or manner or mode it takes, it's hard to understand because you're only interested in protecting the status quo. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen. What an interesting thing. What's he supposed to be listening for? For God to speak? No, he's supposed to be listening because your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, the New Testament tells us there's blood that speaks a better word than the word of Abel's blood. And that's awesome. But Jesus' word, his blood speaks a powerful message over your life when you choose to be identified with it. But what happens when if we didn't premeditate sin, we find ourselves in sin, and then when confronted with it, we don't own up to it. The words, I repent, and more than words, deeds, don't follow that. Instead, we just kind of like, well, you know, everybody communicates differently. What happens when we find ourselves squirming and saying things like, well, if I hadn't been in this situation, Lord, that wouldn't have happened. I want to show you what happens. Now you are under a curse, the word says. What an interesting thing. Adam and Eve did something God said do not do, right? They, they ate from a tree they're not allowed to eat from. And it got them expelled from the garden. But was there a curse levied on them? There was not. There was a curse levied on the ground. 
there was a curse levied upon the servant. There was never a curse spoken directly to a man from God before this one. This is the first instance outside the garden where God is speaking with a man and it ends up He's cursing the man. What kind of life gets cursed? A kind that premeditates sin. A kind that is, when confronted with sin, will not own up to it. A kind that even when it is apparent that you sinned, makes excuses. That kind of life receives a curse 100% of the time. Listen to what the curse was. And this might even get a little closer to all of our doors. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on earth. Before we get to this, what would be the mark of Cain before God put a physical mark on him? No matter how hard he worked, no matter what he did, it would be fruitless. That's an interesting thing when you consider what happens next. The second mark, not only would he be fruitless, he'd be a restless wanderer. You know what Cain goes to do after this? Builds a city. Does that sound like he's alone? You know, his progenitory, the people that come from him, Tubal Cain and all of these people, father of the musical arts, craftsmanship, all kind of things. Does that sound like fruitless? See, you can look like you are surrounded by everybody in the world but have no intimate fellowship with them. You can look fruitful in the world's eyes in every way and in the end, Psalm 72 says it would be mowed down like grass. Do you not remember what it was like when you were lost and you were standing in a room surrounded by your friends and were all alone? The position of the person who is unrepentant is the same way. Unable to connect. Something's in the way. Some issue that for lordship reasons, for the Lord to really be your Lord, He requires you to deal with. And when we make excuses, and we say, oh, no, 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 that's, uh, that's Brandon's problem, that's Elizabeth's problem, but it's, not, it's not, not, not me, Lord. When we do those kind of things, we are positioning our life to fall under a curse. Now, I know we're all familiar with the scriptures like Galatians that speaks of the curse of the law falling upon Jesus and no curse coming on us. I get that. And when we walk in Jesus, there is no room for this, but this is not how Jesus acts. This is not how Jesus acts. As a pastor, I see this a lot. But I've got to be honest, the most frightening things are when I see it in my own life. When there's something that's pulling at the corners of my mind that shouldn't be there. And rather than run to tell somebody I have devilish thoughts like, but I'm a pastor. <laughs> right? As if pastors don't struggle with things. Then, you mess up and are overcome with anger or something. Maybe even strike the bumper on your truck. But you're tempted to just say the wrench slipped. You do whatever you can to preserve your image. When we do this, this begins to separate us from the love of God. Oh, He loves you where you're at, but you can't feel it and reciprocate it. It begins to condemn you to something that cannot bear fruit in the kingdom. The marks of an unrepentant person is they cannot connect with other people, and they cannot bear fruit that God will notice. i got to tell you, sometimes there are in churches that are huge, sometimes they're the pastors of those churches, but it is not fruit that God will notice. And you can build a city, even a fortress, around you. 
But in your heart, when you lay down at night, and you know that there's still a stumbling block between you and the Lord, and you do nothing about it, the curse grows. What a difficult subject to cover, huh? I'd rather just preach God wants you blessed, or rich, or fat, or happy. And yet, this is the kingdom of God. The message from the beginning has been, repent, the kingdom is at hand. So before I move on to any of these other scriptures, there's something that we should consider. If you took 30 seconds here, and God, how long would that feel if we just sat quietly for 30 seconds? Our world is so busy, so full of distraction, that we rarely just sit and listen to the Lord. But if we did that right now, if we just sat and said nothing, not for 30 seconds, what if it was 30 minutes? Time it takes you to watch your favorite sitcom. When's the last time you can remember that not only did you feel remorse from an action, you completely changed your direction. You announced that you were changing the direction and you did whatever you could do to repair what you had done wrong. So that's how the Bible describes repentance. When's the last time you can definitely say, I did that? So, well, I'm a strong Christian, Eric. It ought not be very often. No, you are wrong, my friend. The stronger the Christian, the more often it is happening. The closer you get to the light, the more areas you see that you have to completely turn from. It ought to have a crushing effect in you that God will never despise. Never. If you've gone a year without saying I'm sorry and meaning it, not just to God but the people around you, you need to consider the condition of your heart might be something that is difficult to produce fruit. It might be isolating you might be causing you to be a restless wanderer even if you're surrounded by friends. Turn with me to Jeremiah 5. Do you have room in your heart for a message that doesn't involve pom-poms? Yes. yes. Because American Christianity scarcely has room in their heart for a message on repentance. And yet I don't care what they're doing. I care what the king of the universe is doing. And I can tell you, if we're going to see great moves of God in our midst, they must be preceded by great moves of repentance. Yes. If we're going to be trusted with the power of the kingdom, we have to first show that we're yielded to the kingdom. And that means constant course correction. You could say that with me. Constant, constant course, course correction. correction. What we like to do is show everybody that we've been pointed in the right direction. And man, since I was a little kid, I've served the Lord. Let's get real. Let's be honest. How many times could we add up that you didn't serve the Lord during those years? Maybe we need to change our testimonies. Maybe we need to talk more seriously about the time in which you were filled with His power in a way that caused sincere repentance, not just words and remorse. Here comes Jeremiah 5. Uh, go up and down the streets in Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Although they say as surely as the Lord lives, still they are swearing falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. We're going to keep reading here in a minute and see how that turns out. 
But when the Lord moves in an area, we're all too quick to receive it if it's a blessing. It's very difficult, though, to get people even to pray for an hour before the service. It's easier to talk in the hallway, isn't it? It's easier to do anything else other than slow down, take a deep look at our lives and say, Lord, where does the course correction needs to occur? And your mind will be right there pacifying you the whole way, saying, oh, no, 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 you love the Lord and you're right on track, really, in every area. How badly do you want Him to be Lord of all of your life? I have never been fond of the Pentecostal travailing, the begging God to forgive them. But I do want to say this. I like it better than I like the charismatic assumption that he already has. No heart work, no repentance, no change. Well, I know that the Lord forgives me and still hate the brother that you're saying you committed the sin with. I'm pretty well familiar with the kind of sin that a person hates their father, for instance. Their father did unimaginable things. And at the same time, you're saying you forgive him, there's a sneer on your face. And if he walked through the door, you'd rather shoot him than have to talk to him. I'm pretty well familiar with what it is to have deep embedded wounds, not from the lost, but from the body of Christ, and have to root them out, and have to work around that, and, and cause something good to grow in it by letting the Lord's light shine on it. But I can tell you the most harm that was ever done to me in the kingdom came from a man that had 20-year-old issues like this that he never dealt with. Never baptized. Never got things right. Because he had an image to uphold. An image. We need to be very, very careful that our image does not put us in a situation where God is accusing us of having a callous heart. That could be difficult, huh? Look at verse 4. I thought, these are only the poor. They're foolish. In other words, uneducated. For they do not know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. So I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. But with one accord, they too had broken off the yoke. The yoke being the way of life. Now I'm sure they were still going to the temple. I'm sure they were still making sacrifices. I'm sure they were still reading the Torah and quoting the ethics of our fathers, Pirakot Avot, every Sabbath because this is what Jews do. And yet their hearts were callous towards the Word of God. How many times in religious history, even godly religious history, has the church or the body of believers, the assembly in the wilderness, gotten to the place where the Word of the Lord was rare because our hearts were hard. Let me ask you something. Is it easier to hear from the Lord about something you want or something you do not want? I was driving down the interstate with some difficulties many years in my past. Some people harmed Mandy and they harmed me. And we forgave them and moved on. Except on the last few days of a very long fast, the Lord began to tell me that there was unfinished work there. I thought, no, surely. It's years ago. I haven't had a bad thought about them and blah, 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 blah. And yet my fingers trembled as I had to dial that. And my heart's most earnest desire as I was calling them was that I'd get a voicemail. <laughs> See, it's not enough to feel bad about something, saints. 
Until you put fingers or feet to your faith, you don't know where your heart really is. I would have sworn up and down everything was fine until I actually had to face it. I had to call three people that day. As far as I know, the only three people on the planet that were angry with me. Lots changed since then. There's more than three now. <laughs> Two of them God had made a table for in the midst of my enemies. And we became friends and there was reconciliation. A third called down curses on me from heaven. It's not about how you're received. It's not about how the other person will react. It's about working the soil of your heart. And how sad is it that Cain stared at the soil every day, offered fruits from the soil to the Lord, but did not know how to work the soil of his own heart. Weeds had grown up. Weeds that were choking out his trust in the Lord. Weeds that began to poison his garden so that he thought evil of his brother and thought the Lord wouldn't notice. So I will go to the leaders and speak with them. Surely they know the way of the Lord. But with one accord they too broke off the yoke. Therefore, a lion from the forest will attack them. A wolf from the desert will ravage them. A leopard will lie in wait for their towns to tear to pieces any who venture out for their rebellion is great and their backslidings many. A lack of repentance, a refusal to repent, 100% of the time brings judgment whether you are spirit-filled, speak in other tongues, and do miracles, or not. But the spirit-filled, charismatic, on fire, whatever you are, charismatic zoo, we say it's the devil attacking us. If this lion, this wolf, this leopard showed up and was eating people, couldn't you say it was the devil? I mean, doesn't he roam about like a roaring lion? And yet, whether it's the devil or whether God authorized it, or however you want to do that theological dance, who caused it? Their refusal to repent. Why should I forgive your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods? Did you hear that? God said, why should I forgive? I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery and thronged to the houses of prostitutes. Do you literally think that everybody in Israel was thronging to the house of a prostitute? But there was no stronger imagery that God could use. He said, when I care for you, when I provide for you, when I tell you what is right and what is wrong, and you cannot be honest with me about the dark corners of your heart and do what I tell you to do, it's as if you have forsaken me for a common whore. What an ugly word, huh? You ever watch a movie or something where there's a theme of unfaithfulness in it? And all of a sudden, in the core of your stomach, you feel that yuckiness. You want to look away, you want to turn it off. I can't watch them. I mean, look, I can. a lot of stones can be thrown at me for watching a lot of things, but unfaithful movies are not one of them that I, I, I have a palate for. This is what God's describing in the pit of His stomach. When His people do not hearken to His voice. So well, I'm not sure if it's the Lord. Would it crucify your flesh? Would it lift up your brother? That's probably the Lord. If it elevates your flesh or pushes your brother down in some way, probably not the Lord. You're beginning to see why we truncated the worship service today? Sometimes it takes being confronted with the Word. Sometimes you have to both create time to hear from God and something to meditate on before things surface in our hearts. 
But we have so many people that need to be healed in here. We have so many relationships that need to be healed in here. We have so much left to do for God. We have so many mountains left to climb. That if we stand back and we say, oh no, it's all blessings, it's all blessings, all is good. And then wonder why the power of God doesn't show up. And in a hundred years, we can call it a denomination, the P. Rose denomination. And we'd be no different than anybody else. What separates the children of God from the children of the devil is how we relate to our brothers. And that starts with how you relate to the God of the universe. It needs to be honest. It needs to be pure. He goes on to say that they're going to be ravaged. They're going to be destroyed. Their branches stripped off. In other words, no fruit. Verse 10, branches stripped off. They cannot bear fruit. He's going to cause them to be restless wanderers. You know why? They're going to be surrounded by people, but they will be Jews and the people will be Babylonians. The same curse that fell upon Cain fell upon God's princes of the universe. It fell on them. And it fell on them because they did not repent. We can be no different saints. No different except we are even more guilty. Did you see at the beginning of this? If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive the city. There is one person in our midst who has dealt honestly. There is one person who deserves forgiveness. It's Yeshua, the Hamashiach. And because of His faithfulness, you can be forgiven. No matter what's occurred. Somebody told me, that you don't know what so-and-so has done. I said, I don't care if there's a dead body in their trunk, if they have come to the Lord sincerely right now. I'm not in the business of asking where you were last year. I want to know where your heart is right now. Christianity is a place where you can come and start over. It's a place where you can come and if you get your heart right before the Lord, the curse that was meant for you falls on Him. And then you live for Him for the rest of your life. Turn with me to Isaiah 30. There. Oh, I went the wrong way. What's that say? You're not there. Yeah. <laughs> Isaiah 30. Yeah. When it went the wrong way, I repented and went back the right way. Isaiah 30, look at verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. Before I move on from that, repentance and rest. Those two things in a lot of ways don't go together. And yet as I began to think about our busy lives, I started to understand it. Have you ever done something wrong? Like maybe you walked by Miss Elizabeth and stepped on her toe and said, Oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. But then just kept going. Because if we keep ourselves busy enough, we don't think about the hurt that it caused her. We don't think about what we might need to do to help make that right. I knocked off her toenail. At least I could do is help her get a pedicure. Right? right? We keep ourselves so busy that we don't know what it means to actually get before God and not only repent, but then rest in that. Dwell on it. Think about what could be done differently and more. What might need, need to be done to repair? I know as Christians we're often in the boat of saying, no, the, the Lord's already paid for all my sin. I'm not talking about buying righteousness. But if you stole somebody's car and then got born again and forgiven, how dare you not try to return their car? 
and put some gas in it and wash it. And maybe fix anything that's wrong. And whatever else you can do to add at least a fifth to it. We think, because we said we're sorry, it's okay. Well, Eric, you don't understand. My sin didn't involve another person. It involved the computer screen. You mean you took pleasure in other people's lives being destroyed? What might you do to be able to fix that? Maybe you can go help where there's runaways. Maybe you can go help at an abortion clinic. Maybe you can look for people to rescue. Since you at one time took pleasure in someone else's domination by sin. So we think the Lord doesn't see these things. We think because we say we're sorry and move on, it's, it's okay. No, it's not. It's not. There's more than that. Our grace has become so cheap. It's become so greasy. It's become so easy. It's fast food Christianity. It's Fat Tuesday, but Wednesday's on the way, right? Sin all we want today because tomorrow we'll repent and God will forgive us. Really? If you premeditate sin, are you so sure that God will forgive you so easily just because you asked and said it? Let me ask you something. Back to our wife slapping example. How quickly should your wife forgive you if it's the 15th time you've slapped her and said you were sorry <coughs> every time they kept slapping her? You think God will be mocked? Carnal sins are so easy to see. If we make it a slap, if we make it pornography, so if we make it stealing, so easy to see. And issues of the heart are so much harder to deal with because we lie even to ourselves. We say, no, I don't hate them. Really? Think about them for a minute and see what it does to you. <laughs> Think about sitting down at a meal with them. What would that do to you? <clears throat> Tell me you don't hate them now. Say, but I... I thought I was right. You don't understand all the circumstances tricked me. Yes, that's what it is to be deceived. Did you admit to it? Did you say, I was deceived, I am sorry, I don't want to go that way again, and then take steps to do it? Yes, but it was just me and the Lord. Well, was your sin just you and the Lord? Why do we repent in private and sin in public? Sometimes the church has watered this down to the point where you would think it was an easy thing for Jesus to go to the cross. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Neither repentance nor rest. In other words, a restless, fruitless wanderer. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left. Like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Refusing to repent means that no matter how much you say you're blessed, no how much you go to a church and the pastor is wonderful, and you're so sure that all your problems are cured because he's so much better than that other pastor in the storefront, and the children's church, I mean, they even they check you in and out with a badge. And they got all the best Bible studies. You will sit in the midst of that and be alone. You'll work, but bear no fruit. Y'all, as I began to dwell on this, not only did I remember that time in my life, I saw periods of it in my life, even now, since Christ. And as I began to pray for my congregation, 
and pray for people that have been in and out of our congregation, I saw yet more of it, working and producing no fruit, surrounded by people and unable to connect. Wow. This is something that is not supposed to rest on our shoulders. It's something that fell on Jesus so that it did not have to fall on us, but it requires Him to be your Lord. And that means if He says take a right turn, you don't go up the street and do something else. It means if He says stop, you don't do something else. If He says go, you don't do something else. That would mean He was not your Lord. Listen to the intent of God's heart here. It's verse 18. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. It's not the Lord's will to hurt anybody. Proverbs 15.10 was shared with me this morning. What a great scripture. You receive stern discipline when you leave the path. Stern. The further you go off of that thing, the further you go from the way that God wants you to walk, the harsher He will be towards you. To the point where I have known Christians, spirit-filled, powerful Christians, that I'm convinced God cut their life short. They cut their life short because if they kept going the way they were going, they would have eventually walked away from Him. O people of Zion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for Him. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious He will be when you cry for help. As soon as He hears, He will answer you. He puts afflictions occasionally in your path to get you to realize that you're working the soil and not seeing what He promised. And the problem is not with Him. It's with you. Now, there is a danger in this. You could take this message and twist it and say, that one's very fruitful, so He must be right with the Lord. No, no. Fruitful in the Lord's eyes. What is highly esteemed among men is despised among God, Jesus said. Just because somebody has got a thriving business, because their grass grows in their yard, because their church has innumerable people in it, does not mean that they're fruitful in the Lord's eyes. I heard a preacher in India here recently say he was not proud that he had 30 churches. And he did he was not proud that more than 100,000 people attended those. And they did. He said he was proud that he had managed to raise up 11 elders that he knew would give their life for the gospel without hesitation. That was his glory, his pride. When is the last time something like that was esteemed? No, preachers take pride in their outward fruitfulness. Christians take pride in how much they're blessed. They don't even know what blessing is. We should take pride in the fact that we know we have an intimate connection with Him that is unhindered by sin that was not dealt with. No skeletons in our closet. No relatives we can't look in the eye. No ex-bosses that we have to be ashamed when we see them. But wherever it is, our conscience is clean of the blood of all men. I bet that was a fight, and a good fight. How often do you think Paul was slandered? How often do you think he was slandered by Christians? How often wrongly imprisoned? How often, while he was in prison, do you think people went to his disciples and his churches and took up offerings? And yet he was innocent of the blood of all men. 
What an amazing thing. He must have learned what it was to repent. Turn with me to Isaiah 59. Fifty-nine, twenty. By the way, Romans 2 teaches us that it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. That's a funny thing, isn't it? His kindness leads to repentance. Did you hear how He led Israel to repent? He sent a lion, a wolf, a leopard, and then the Babylonian nation? Does that sound like kindness? Well, it all depends on how you look at it. What would be worse, to be eaten by a wolf or to go into hell a lot? How about his kindness leading Nebuchadnezzar to repent? Anybody here want to take a seven-year vacation in a field like an animal? And yet I bet at the end of his life, Nebuchadnezzar was happy because he got the message. His last written work for the whole world said, God is able to abase the proud and there is no God like the God of the Jews. Whatever it takes, Lord. Whatever it takes. We're not some weird spiritual sadist. We don't want God to hurt us. And He doesn't want to hurt us. But whatever it takes to wake us up, right? Listen to this, verse 20. Benefits of repentance. The Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who... (coughs) Who repent of their sins. Who will God approach? Those who repent of their sins. What was John the Baptist's uh, entire six-month ministry? He's trying to make a way for the Lord. Go before Him, break open a way. What was the wall? What was in the way? Lack of repentance. Sin. So He began baptizing people. He began literally washing them, showing them that the inside of their heart needed to be washed in the same way or they would never receive what was coming. How can we think we'll receive the next great move of God without washing our hearts? Say, but you don't understand, Eric. I was baptized when I was eight. Wake up. Wake up. That's why the Word tells us daily to circumcise our hearts. We've got to be washed in a way that prepares us for God's next new thing. That is, if we want to participate in it. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My Spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or the mouths of your children's children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever. What is the benefit of repentance? God's Spirit will be upon you. His Word will not depart from you. In other words, He becomes like a GPS for you. This is the way. Walk in it. This is how you do it. But when you go your own way, lack of repentance leads to multiplied sin. So that you go off and build your own city. The unrepentant are always city builders. Eric, how could that be? The restless wonders. No, they do this. He hurt me. Did you hear how he hurt me? You didn't hear. You need to agree with me. Let's talk. In fact, don't talk to him. Just talk to me until you understand how much he hurt me. Now let's go over here and let's build our little camp all based on how he hurt me. Don't tell me they're not city builders. I've watched them leave our church in my I've watched them leave our church and do that. And not just this church, every church I've ever been a part of. They're city builders. And they stand back and say, we have blessing. We have blessing. Look, our kids, 
They, they're musical. This kid can work with metals. All the things that they did in Cain City. By the way, Cain named it after his own family. And yet there is no blessing in it. And if you look close, you'll see that the very first polygamists, the very first murderers, the very first vengeful, vengeful people were all dwelling there. Oh, but they had all of the arts working. They had all of the metal working. They had all of the wealth of the world there. City builders. You want to build the city of God or do you want to build a city like that? Because the city of God is built on repentance. Being quick to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. And not caring who knows. You ever been in the car like me and would not stop and ask for directions? Well, that's kind of funny when you're on a trip. It's kind of stereotypical guys. And you can get away with that. You cannot get away with it in your spiritual life. Who is he to correct me? Who does that person think they are? Do they know I'm 20 years older than them? It won't work. You put yourself under a curse. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Then I have got something that will blow your socks off. Then we're going to worship. Now what do you know about Jeremiah 31? I mean, what comes to mind when I say, turn to Jeremiah 31? Oh wow, y'all need to repent and read the word more. What, what is in Jeremiah 31, say around 33? It's the, uh, the Old Covenant. It's a promise of a new covenant. Everybody knows Jeremiah 31, 33. At least, I hope you read Jeremiah enough to know that. The promise of the new covenant. It's one of the only times in all of the word new covenant is mentioned. You know what's before it? Pick up with me in 31, 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning for great Mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your future. Let me give you some historical context to this. We're going to keep reading this in a minute, but this is not one you want to phase out on. The Redeemer was promised to Judah. That's Genesis 49.10. The scepter will not depart until He comes to whom it belongs. Then in 2 Samuel 7, it's promised to the house of David. And David had a son. His son Solomon ruled in peace, a type of what it is to have the Messianic age. But because Solomon's heart turned away from the Lord, in his children's day was a civil war in Israel. How much did the civil war in our nation affect our nation? What if you were all the descendants of the ten northern tribes personified by Joseph, personified by Ephraim, his son, personified by his mother Rachel, and you broke away from the Davidic family, the Davidic line, and you built a city ten tribes big, and you began to worship goat gods and other things that we now know as Samaritans. And then the Messiah came and you realized you were wrong. It had gone on for centuries. Northern kings warring against southern kings. This scripture is quoted at Jesus' birth because the northern tribes realized in that moment they were wrong. Their children all died under Herod. The sole survivor was Messiah, 
they had been wrong. They thought we're just as good as the descendants of David. We have just as high and holy places as the descendants of David. We deserve the Messiah the same way the descendants of David do. And they were wrong and unrepentant for hundreds of years. And this is the crying and wailing of repentance. And listen to what the Lord says. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf. When's the last time you felt like God beat you like a cow? (laughs) And I have been disciplined. Restore me and I will return because you are the Lord my God. What was He before that? The Lord someone else's God. When you're unrepentant, you cannot say the Lord my God because if He was your God, you would do what He said. We say Jesus is Lord. It rolls off of our tongue so easily. If He is Lord, then you must do what He says. And if He tells you to love your enemy. I found out that obedience is an easy thing. I mean, it's as easy as could be as long as you agree with the person you're having to be obedient to. (laughs) Obedience is never tested when the Lord tells you to do what was in your mind to do. One of my least favorite things is when I tell somebody something and they say, oh yes, this would already have in mind to do. I want to say, and yet you weren't doing it. How does that work? Could this be a cover up for some pride there? Are you very concerned somebody is correcting your course? And by the way, why am I your pastor then? If that's not my job, whose job is it? Don't you let your heart say it's nobody's job. You'll damn yourself. The Holy Ghost ought to be working in you to bear witness. We have to be the most correctable, flexible people on the planet. It really ought not take a sledgehammer. It ought to take a gentle whisper. Especially when you have the power of the Holy Ghost living inside of you. I bet by the end of Cain's deception, no amount of sledgehammer could get his attention. This is the problem with staying in that situation. You were so convinced you're right, nobody can turn you around. Not even God. This is why it showed up in the flesh to a nation that did not turn around. They've been in deception a long time. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Did you hear that? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. God's eyes are upon us. He remembers us even when we're running our own way. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highways, the road that you take. Return, O virgin Israel. He called her a prostitute a few chapters earlier, now he calls her a virgin. What are the benefits of repentance? There is always a way back, no matter how far you have gone. What are the benefits of repentance? No matter how bad you've soiled your garment, it can become white again. What is your pride costing you? Wow. Can you imagine what if Cain had fallen on his face when God approached and said, I am sorry, I am sorry, I messed up. I did exactly what you warned me not to do and I deserve whatever punishment you give me. If God was this gracious to him when he was unrepentant, that he protected his life, that he allowed him to prosper, what would he have done for him if he had repented? Now turn that and apply it to your life. 
if He's been this good to you, knowing that you have areas of your life that you are not dealing with. How long you sat in a church and never tithed? You call it a tithe, but in reality it's a tip. How long you've been mad at a relative? How long have you had things in there that are not in Jesus' heart so they cannot be in yours if you're in the body of Christ? And don't get it right. And He's been this good to you anyway. Do we show contempt for His grace then? We cannot. This is a housekeeping message, saints. And it's not a big bodybuilder in the sense that lots of people are going to come fill these seats to hear it. But it is a huge bodybuilder in that as we make these adjustments, light begins to break forth for us. Righteousness begins to shine forth for us. Power is there in your prayer. There is a renewed vigor. And I'm talking from top down. I'm talking from Matthew and Eric right on down to Judah and Gabriel. If the church of God will not repent, it will never see its power. It needs to be a daily reckoning between you and God. I've taught so much that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus that you might forget that there's a dead man hanging on to you trying to control you just as much. I never wanted people to feel condemned, bowed over, beat down. And yet, if you don't teach people to repent, that's all they'll ever be. Bowed over, beat down, condemned, covered in shame. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road that you take. He is clearly marking the path for repentance, and so is the Holy Ghost for you right now. As we began speaking, did something come to mind, but as we've been talking, you've been kind of intellectualizing it, rationalizing it away? I know, I did the same thing for years. It kept me damned while I was sitting in a church. Can't be talking about me. I mean, Pastor and I are friends. If we're really friends, then I'm definitely talking about you. <laughs> Return, O virgin Israel. Return to your towns. How long will you... What's that word? Wonder. Just like Cain. O unfaithful daughter, the Lord will create a new thing on the earth. He's been calling her a daughter even though it's Ephraim. He's been calling her a virgin even though it's Ephraim. The Lord will create a new thing on the earth. A woman will surround a man. That is one of the strangest scriptures that you'll ever read. Our Catholic brothers love to take this one. In its context... Ephraim, all of Israel is being spoken of as a virgin daughter, and yet if she will repent, the captors that surrounded her, sieged her, and took her by uh, captive to Babylon, she will surround. See, repentance is a game changer. It takes that which has beat on you, that which has bullied you, that which has beat you down, and it puts you above it so that you can walk on it in kingdom power. This is why the devil works so hard for it not to happen. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and all its towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers, fruitful people, and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. What are the benefits of repentance? Harmony. Vitality. Restoration. 
weary all of the time? You feel like you're going to faint? Have church services become for you just something to endure? Examine your heart. Would you rather go sit and watch Seinfeld than go get in the presence of God? I wonder why. Proudest moment of Matthew. I was so happy to have somebody here beside me during difficult times. God looks me in the eye and says, I hate meeting with you. It's always a bad meeting. Matt said, stop sinning and it won't be that way. <coughs> he was right. If you're not enjoying the presence of God, maybe we need to stop sinning so that we can. I've even lived long enough to watch charismatics try to outperform each other in worship to show they were right with God when I knew neither one of them were. See, our worship, our connection with God is not something that can be faked. It's not about music. It's not about pitch. It's not about who shows the most zeal. If it was that, a cheerleading competition could have won. It's about being connected to the king in a way that you do what he says when he says it. And you know what? He doesn't forget it when you say no. You move on, but he will always bring you back to the same place. And if you've been burying something a year or two years or five years or ten years and still seeing blessings of God, I want to assure you he will continue to bring you back to that place until he is Lord of every square inch of you. He's either Lord of all of you or eventually he'll be Lord of none of you. Turn with me to Matthew 3. I want to show you a pattern. This comes quickly in Matthew. Don't think I forgot about Korah's sons. Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repentance is a precursor for kingdom. Not just to enter the kingdom, but to walk in the kingdom. To receive more of the kingdom. To have the kingdom flow through you requires continual repentance. You have to change the directions you were going and go whatever direction God says to go. He's more complicated than it being a one-time deal. Have any of you completely understood your spouse from the moment that you said, I do? You knew right then and never needed any more instruction on how to make them happy? If you do, please write a book. I'd like to, I'd, well, I'll buy it from you. You are in a lifelong eternal covenant with Him, and it requires constant course correction. He kind of likes the, to see people say, I'll never do anything but what I'm doing right here. This is God. And then He moves on them in a little different way, and they say, I'm sorry. Apparently I didn't understand it all. I'm now doing what you told me to do. Even if it requires you to move to another country. He likes that. It's what shows he owns you rather than he just uh, set you and let you go. Huh? How about Matthew 3.8? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is the biggest one. Fruit in keeping with repentance. What on earth does that even mean? This is a phrase you do not even hear in church. Although it was preached from the beginning, it's not something that's understood because to us, repent means, I'm sorry. That is not biblical repentance. 
I'm not going to teach it today because I don't think I have time, but I want you to go and read this. Numbers 5, starting in verse 5, will absolutely outline what repentance is for you. It is remorse that causes you to confess publicly what you did wrong. That's step one. Step two, it requires you to take a different direction that makes restitution. Not enough to say, I'm sorry I did wrong. You have to try to make it right. Not because you're buying righteousness, but because it's the right thing to do and He bought you. Step three, all restitution belongs to the Lord. This means if you did something that cannot be atoned for in your actions, you live forever as if your life deserved to die and was granted to you from Him and so you owe Him your life. A slave that is set free. And the whole passage starts with, if any man has wronged his brother in any way and so has been unfaithful to the Lord. Numbers 5.5 5 teaches us that unfaithfulness to our brother is unfaithfulness to the Lord. Think about the Ten Commandments. He spent four of them talking about his relationship with you and six of them talking about your relationship with other people. Everybody claims to be right with God. Let's test that. How right are you with your fellow man? Where are you at? How are you doing with that? You need some course correction? Matthew 3.11 says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I. I want to tell you that it is a prerequisite that you repent before you receive power. On any level that you work in the kingdom, when you want to be entrusted with more, you have to show God there is less of you. On any level, period. If you are a doorkeeper in the church, if you're the guy that fixes the ACs, or the guy that sings like an angel, if you want more of anything from God, there has to be less of you. Repent, and then one more powerful will come. Jesus' very first message. You can turn to the right in your Bible. You're around the 4th chapter, 12th verse. He's just come out of the desert. It is the first time that He is preaching to Israel. The very first word. First message Jesus shares, first word Jesus shares, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. See, God's blessing is just around the corner, but what we do makes all of the difference in the world. Y'all ready to get to our text today? <laughs> the sons of Korah, go to number 16. In a couple minutes, we're going to worship for the rest of the message. One of the ways I know that God is moving in our midst, at least in my life, is that when we get together and we study, and the men that help me do this stuff, we sit and talk, I'm always worried that there's not enough here to make a message. And then as I begin to feel the anointing, I find out God has more to say on the subject than any of us thought, and we don't have enough time. Friends, we're not preaching out of our own imaginations. And we're certainly not looking for what would make you or us feel better. These are tune-up messages because the church needs it. And if you like that when we say it in the third person, the church needs it, who is the church? Amen. We're getting there. Number 16. 
going to be a lot of funny names here, but I'm going to bring some out for you. If you have the pastor's corner in your bulletin and you'd like to take notes, this would be a good one. Korah, he'd be number one. Son of Eshar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites. By the way, that lineage that was just given goes all the way back to Levi, showing that the man's a Levite. And from the lineage, you can tell what his duties are in Israel. Isn't that crazy? He had duties for all of high religious service. It was amazing. This guy is, he's like a secretary of state. He just wasn't Aaron or one of Aaron's sons. He was not a high priest. Dathan and Abiram, that would be number two and three. Sons of Eliab and On, son of Peleth, that would be number four, On, became insolent. Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On became insolent. Not the stuff you inject in your arm if you're a diabetic. This has to do with a hatred, a jealousy, and anger. Four people became insolent. What's your title say above number 16? Rebellion by Korah. What else? Who else got another one? Years of wandering. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Wow. Three people. There's four mentioned in verse 1, and there's three people in the title to some of your Bibles. Anybody ever see the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments? Dathan had a prominent role in this. You know who was not pictured in that? Own. They rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who have been appointed members of the council. I want you to understand that in this four-person conspiracy with 250 men that followed, there was not a single person who was not honored with the privilege of leadership. Not a single person. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. Who's gone too far? Moses has. The whole community is holy. Every one of them. The Lord is with them. What is their complaint? Did anybody say they weren't holy? Did anybody say that they weren't equals? What is the complaint? Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? We have confused something in our day. We have said that women are equal to men, which is right. But in that mistake, we've said that their functions are equal, which is absolutely wrong. We've said that all Christians are equal, that God loves us equally, which is right. But in that statement, we've decided that our functions are equal. And this one's function is equal to that one's function. And that is blatantly wrong. God has set a system of authority in the world. It starts with His body. It starts with your household. But there is a system of authority. And two people have equal worth before God, but they do not have equal authority. Period. Because of their function. And we cannot like that because we're Americans, but even in our representative democracy, you have the same worth as a senator. Do you have the same function? You don't. You have the same worth as the President of the United States, but do you have the same function? These people are all leaders, but a sin has crept into their heart. Since God loves us equally, since we're all blessed by the Lord, since we're priests every one, 
these people don't have a different function, a higher function than ours, and we should not submit to them. Well, it's a little bit like Cain. Well, I'm Abel's equal. I mean, after all, we're both made in his image. We're both bringing offerings. Their deeds are actually going to show why they weren't trusted with a higher level of function. Did Moses set himself in this position? No, it's a false accusation. Moses did everything, do you remember? He did everything he could to avoid that position. He, he, he said, no, Lord, send somebody else. My mouth doesn't work well. I mean, God had to rebuke him to get him to take this position. How easy it is when jealousy has crept in our heart, when a lack of repentance, when a hurt has crept in our hearts to make false accusations against others, to assign them bad motives. How easy that is. When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take your censers, and tomorrow put fire and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near to himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near Himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too. You know where you find selfish ambition, James 3.16? You find every evil practice. Selfish ambition sometimes manifests itself in the smallest way. Who is able to get God's blessing? I brought an offering too. And look what it leads to. And not repenting from that. Look at the fruit that it yields. It is against the Lord that you and your followers have banded together. We need to understand whether we're talking about in a church or just talking about God's leading in your life. When He tells you to forgive somebody and you don't, your problem's not with that person anymore. Your problem's with the Lord. When He tells you to submit to something and you don't, your problem's not with that authority anymore. It's with the Lord. When He tells you to do something... And you say, no, the problem's not with the person you didn't do it for anymore. The problem's with the Lord. Jonah would be a great example of this. How many people have been swallowed by whales and don't know it? Their lives are unfruitful, wandering. They're just waiting to get puked out somewhere. Then Moses summoned, listen to these names, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. He's talked to Korah, and now he's talked to Dathan and Abiram. But they said, we will not come. The God-appointed leader of Israel has asked to meet with them. But they're practicing avoidance. They're sure they're right in their hearts. Why are they sure they're right? Because their eyes told them. And their ears heard it. And who could deny this? Look at all the evidence and the way that it stacks up. But in God's eyes, were they right? How deceived were they? They're deceived enough that the earth is going to swallow them up. Now there is Korah, there is Dathan, and there is Abiram. You know Owen is not mentioned again anywhere 
know them. You think maybe he got a clue when he heard Moses first speak and he ran from them? You know, it's an amazing thing. Because you can stick in a situation just long enough to ruin your legacy forever. Or you can repent in an instant and never be associated with the wickedness that you helped start. What an amazing thing. Owen was as equally guilty as Abiram, Dathan, and Korah. But he does not get recorded anywhere else as a sinner. Not in all of the Bible. When we repent, it's as if it didn't happen if you repent rightly. Now, Moses is going to begin to say some things to these guys. Look at the 23rd verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Move away. Who you lived in biblical tents? If you're at Korah's tent, who else is there? Korah's wife, Korah's sons, Korah's sons' wives, and Korah's sons' daughters. What an amazing thing. How does this story end? Verse 31. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households, and all Korah's men and all their possessions. Turn with me to Psalm 46. Matthew, come up here. Please don't get distracted with the worship team. The word went forth. There's been a grievous sin. The word went forth and said, You cannot both stand with Korah and the Lord. The word went forth and On heard it and he ran. But now everybody is standing at Korah's tent and Dathan's there and Abiram is there and they're saying, we are right, these people are wrong and the Lord will decide. Somebody was not there. Are you in Psalm 46? For the director of music of the sons of Korah, if they had been swallowed by the earth, they would not have written this psalm. But how interesting is it? What they wrote. God is our refuge and strength and an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. The sons of Korah ran from their daddy's wickedness. They would not stand in a family that was in sin and be judged with them. They escaped the judgment of God even as Lot escaped Sodom. And so they go down writing music for God about His faithfulness. The earth can swallow people right next to you, but if you repent from what they're involved in, you can say, Glad is the city of God, for He dwells within her, her, her walls. You can say there's a, strip, a river that makes glad the, the heart of the saints. Our goal here, our hope here today, is that us along with you can worship for the, till our service closes. That we can make sure that we have stood on the opposite side from Korah's tent. That that river that makes glad the city of God would flow to your heart without hindrance.
hindrance because the alternative is to wander like Cain. Be surrounded by people but have no closeness. The alternative is to work hard but never bear fruit because your heart is filled with soil God cannot bless. Saints, this is not a message for lost people any more than this book is for lost people. It's a correction for the church. Examine your heart. Let us get right. That when we come in here, you hope there's a prophet that's reading everybody's mail because you have nothing to hide. That when we come in here, you hope to be that prophet because you know that you're a vessel God can work through. This is what we want. And our church, it may never grow in numbers in the way that some has, but it'll grow in fruitfulness before the Lord in a way that'll make you proud on that day. Repentance precedes power. Let's worship.